Well, I'm drawing your attention uh, this uh, late afternoon to Revelation and chapter 5. If you could turn there with me. Um, the title of my message this afternoon is uh, The Lamb Has Triumphed. The Lamb Has Triumphed. And perhaps the best way to enter into this passage of Scripture is to remind ourselves, uh, first of all, of uh, the times in which John was when he wrote this book, the book of Revelation, and at least identify somehow with something of that reality. Uh, John was at this stage the very last of the apostles. They had been a terrible persecution, especially by the Roman state uh, that was poured upon the Christian church. The Jews had already, already been persecuting the Christian church uh, through its Sanhedrin and so on. But the, because the nation was under uh, Roman captivity, ultimately, it was the Roman government that had the power to put anyone to death. They had done so already with the Savior himself, our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, apostle after apostle, church leader after church leader, was hunted down and killed. Um, John had escaped to the island of Patmos in order for him to think, to pray, to process what was happening. These were, were very difficult days in the life of the church. And that's what you really read from uh, the beginning of this book. He says in chapter 1 and verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. This is really where this book was born, through very difficult circumstances. I'll come back to that in a moment, but at least let me underscore even now that anybody who is within the leadership of the church for a meaningful season or period of time, somewhere along the line, finds himself in that position that John was in. Not necessarily that there is physical persecution where individual leaders are being marked out and killed, but it's in terms of the future of the church because of the times that you might be going through. It might be because of large-scale backsliding, individuals abandoning the faith. It could be because of uh, a, a, a wholesale allowance of wrong teaching flooding into the context of the church that no doubt makes your hair stand on end at the thought 
of what God would be seeing and probably about to do to his own church by way of cleansing it from the, the backsliding, the evil, the wickedness that is being allowed to happen in the church. Whichever cause it might be, as a leader, you are caused to ask the question, where is the future of the church? What does it look like? Well, that's what John was going through at this particular point. And when we get to chapter 5, the message is fairly clear, and it is this, that John, you need to be confident that the future of the church is bright. And the reason why it is bright is because the Lamb has triumphed. But before we get there, we, we notice a few things. First of all, the, 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 the book itself up to this point, and in fact even going on, comprises a number of um, um, things that John is made to see. So soon after the passage that we read in chapter 1, you find he hears a voice, and then in verse 12, he says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And then from there, there are seven letters that are dictated to him. And by the time we get to chapter 4, when we have the last of these letters, again he sees. We see there in chapter 4, verse 1, after this, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. He's invited in to go and see. Again, we notice at the beginning of chapter 5, which is really the beginning of our text, exactly the same thing. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. So John, having been taken away from this place of persecution, is allowed to see a number of sights, and those sights are meant to, to bring energy and revitalization. They are meant to bring to birth within his soul, not just a sense of trust in his God, but a sense of hope concerning the future of the Christian church. And it is this vision that he sees in chapter 5 that I want us to to spend a bit of time on because on one hand, it begins with a real sense of uh, disappointment and despair, and then it ends with a glorious sense of triumph on the part of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is these two realities that I want us to appreciate because in many ways, it is those two realities that we have to wrestle with and deal with as those who are leaders of the Christian church. So let's begin, first of all, with what I'm calling here Earth's discouragement. 
its discouragement. And uh, it is captured for us in John's loud weeping when there was nobody found who could open the scroll and consequently enable him to look in. Let's read verse 1 down to verse 4. The Bible reads, <clears throat> Revelation 5, verse 1 to verse 4, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. We just read that. Verse 2, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And John says, I and I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. I think uh, anybody reading this begins to ask the question, what on earth is the scroll all about? Thankfully, the book of Revelation itself is fairly clear in terms of it being full of picture language. Picture language, first of all, in terms of numbers, and we're going to, to see this happening over and over and over again. You, you have the number three standing for something, you've got the number seven standing for something, you've got the number uh, 24 standing for something, and so on. So you'll find these numbers occurring over and over and over again. But so is the, the other aspects. You, you've got um, here the scroll with seven seals, and when you get to chapter 6 onwards, one seal after the other is being opened. Later on, there are trumpets. Later on, there are vessels that are being poured out, and so on. So it's, it's a book that is rich with imagery. And it's not because it's, it's meant to just prove difficult for us to understand. It, it was meant on one hand to, to hide its message from the persecutors. And in this particular case, it would have been the Roman persecutors. But at the same time, anybody who was familiar with Old Testament writing would in fact easily identify what is going on in this entire letter or book based on the imagery that is there in the Old Testament. For instance, when you turn to Ezekiel and chapter 2, very quickly, Ezekiel chapter 2, you soon see something of a scroll that is there. And... Uh, Ezekiel chapter 2, and right towards the end. I'll begin from verse 8. But you, son of man, hear what I said to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, 
a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. Again, that picture, verse 9, a hand stretched out to me, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back. Again, you can't miss that this is really the picture that we have here. And there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and war. So John, who would have been familiar with Old Testament writing, now sees basically the same picture in front of him. It still doesn't answer for us the question, what is it about? When you go into chapter 6 onwards, you begin to see that different seals are being opened, one after the other. And what you are seeing there is something of uh, the, the, the history of the human race being unfolded by him who is holding the scroll and removing one seal after the other. By implication, therefore, it seems to me that what made John specifically to cry so loudly was the realization that he was not at this point able to look into what would have been the future of the church. The history that was yet to be unfolded was completely closed before him. And as one who was a leader of the Christian church, who was anxious about the church that was undergoing a very difficult time, there was something of a sense of helplessness. But it's not just peeping into the future. Notice it is who is worthy. That's the question. To open the scroll and break its seals. It seems that whoever is going to be worthy is somebody who's going to be in control of the outworking of that history. So it's not just peeping into it, but who is it who is going to, as it were, unfold history to its logical end, its logical conclusion? And John weeps loudly because of the current impediments that are there within the church. There was persecution, and there were antichrists that had already been, as it were, unleashed upon history. If you read First John and chapter 2, he mentions that quite a lot, going into chapter 3 and chapter 4. Wickedness, backsliding, were already beginning to happen in the context of the church. John was saying, where is the church going and how can I be assured of it? Before we go into the positive, 
I think this matters. Many years ago, we had uh, an intern who was a pastoral intern who was from South Sudan. And those of you who know the history of Sudan will realize that there was a time when there was an ongoing battle between the Islamic North and the Christian South. It, and it just was never ending. Every so often, there would be bombs this side, and there would be bombs the other side, and people have died on this end. There would be raids that go into the other end, and so on. And I've never forgotten how this brother, every so often, would want to listen to the news because he wants to know where this battle is going, whether the next thing will be that a particular village in the south has been raided and people have died, or whether there is triumph that has taken place from the south going into the north. This went on until the country was finally divided into two halves. But what I've never forgotten was this ongoing anxiety, how he was gripped by where all this is going. Now, I know we are familiar with the Bible generally. I know we are aware of the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But I think if you are a church leader and you are living even in today's world, it should bother you concerning the church in your neck of the woods, especially as you are noticing the backsliding, the worldliness, the, the multiplication of wrong teaching, error, even heresy, that you might be asking yourself a similar question. Well, thankfully, the answer is finally given to John, beginning with verse 5 downwards. And the first is the statement from one of the elders. And the elder says, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. The good news at last. John, you don't need to weep, weep anymore. Something has happened historically which secures not only the triumph, but also the receiving of the scroll and the opening of it with its seven seals. Now, it is what John sees that finally opens our eyes to where the triumph took place. Calvary. Let's quickly read it in verse 6. The Bible says there, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw not a lion, but a lamb standing. And not just a lamb standing, but a lamb 
as though it had been slain. With seven wounds and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. I've already told you about the numbers. Seven, seven, seven. We already have uh, seven seals, and now we've got seven horns, and now we have seven eyes, and now the seven spirits. Again, that number, simply speaking, in terms of completion or perfection. But ultimately, the point there is the lamb looking as though it had been slain. With New Testament eyes, we know that this is referring to Calvary. What we read earlier on in, in Isaiah chapter 52 and all the way to chapter 53, the picture of what was happening there. You see, the enemies of Jesus Christ, the Jewish leaders, in collaboration with the Roman leaders, thought they were getting rid of him by the way in which there was a mock trial and quickly rushed to the cross and put there with nails in both hands and feet. What they did not realize was that it was all according to plan. God was preparing the, the final great act of redemption for his people. And not only in terms of paying the price for their sins, but in the same act, it was that he was a propitiation. He was taking away God's wrath and therefore turning the God who was against to a God who was for his people. And so in that sense, it was a great victory that was being accomplished when Jesus Christ paid his life's blood and died. Putting it a little differently, Long before Genesis 1 verse 1, in the eternal counsel of God, Father and Son had entered into a covenant. A covenant by which God the Father took a people that he chose and gave them to his son. The son committed himself to pay the liability that these individuals had with his own life's blood. The father committed himself that that having been done, he would give his spirit and through the spirit, he would save his elect people from the four corners of the earth. And he would sanctify them. 
and he would make that church to shine in time and even more so in eternity with the brilliance of the noonday sun. It was all agreed, but everything hung on Calvary. It was that point when mercy and justice would meet and secure the future of God's elect people. All that is being captured in this phrase, a lamb standing as though it had been slain. In other words, what we have there is the Son of God who climbed off his throne, came down on earth, was born as a little baby in Bethlehem, laid in a cow shed in a trough that cows it from, hunted like a wild animal, went to hide in Egypt, came back, in due season became a preacher, finally killed on the cross, three days later rising from the dead, and now ascending to heaven, having paid the price of his people. And basically saying, I have done it. It is finished. May I have the scroll. In other words, what we have in this picture is what Jesus, in a sense, said when he was on earth prior to it happening, when he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, what we have here is John being given the opportunity while he is on earth to see what that meant. The triumph of the Lamb. And what is that? Verse 7. Verse 7. This is the Lamb looking as, it, as if it had been slain. Verse 7 says, And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. The importance of that occasion is particularly captured by the effect on everybody else from this point to the end of the chapter. Look at this. Verse 8. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Now, the Western world, because of an effort to, to make 
kings and princes to become one of us has lost something of the, the grandeur, the, the, the majesty, the, the, the awesomeness of what once was true of the palaces of kings. We still have something of that in Africa. Uh, we, we have headmen, and then on top of headmen, we've got chiefs. But on top of chiefs, we've got what are called paramount chiefs. Wh whose palaces are rarely ever visited. And even if you were to go there, you're not likely to finally enter into the innermost chamber where the paramount chief himself sits. A few steps away from there, you've got the, the circle of the, the greatest warriors that are, are trained to protect the chief. Beyond that, you've got an even wider circle of the elders of the people. And only after that do you then go on to deal with others who belong to the, the, the warriors that defend the entire um, palace. And then from there you've got the, the various outer courts that make up the, the palace infrastructure. It is something of that that is being captured here. The, notice that the lamb is between the throne and the four living creatures, these powerful angelic beings. Just before the king himself, he who sits on the throne. Notice that the moment the scroll is given to him, the immediate effect is on the four living creatures behind him and the 24 elders that are there. Notice how immediately they fall down before the lamb. The message is clear. Power has changed hands. The king has just handed over the reins of the entire realm, the entire dominion to him. We must bow down to him. He is king. That's the picture that is being captured here. But it doesn't end there. Notice later on in verse 11. I'll come back to the intermediary verses. Verse 11. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. It's 
the next ring. Those angels, those servants of God, those mighty servants of God, the voices of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Now, this is language in, in New Testament time that is beggared. Those are the highest numbers that could have been mentioned there. It's, it's basically saying thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. In other words, too numerous to number. If it was computer language, you would say gigabytes and, and go a little bit further to, 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 to just keep adding the bytes. And they are saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb. Worthy. Worthy. Why? He has triumphed. How has he triumphed? Through being slain. Allow me to go a little further. Verse 13. And I heard every living creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them. Are you appreciating this wave that's coming from the throne? That those mighty angels around the throne have bowed down. That 24 elders have bowed down. The many angels that surround the throne have bowed down and sung with a loud voice. And now it's the entire kingdom. And now is the total realm that also joins in to say to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And as all that is being seen from the center of the throne room, from the, the four living creatures, from the, the 24 elders that are there, they say, Amen. In other words, that's only right. It's the right response to give to what has just happened in this throne room. That all the knees are bowing to the lordship of this one who sits on the throne and to him who is the lamb. Let's take a few steps backwards then and get back to that section that I skipped. Because the section that I skipped tells us why? Why all this has happened? And it's back to the cross. It's to the cross. 
Listen to this. Verse 9. And they sang a new song. This is a song that is being sung in the throne room of heaven. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? For you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God for every tribe, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Have you noticed that there is no leakage between Jesus' death on the cross and the final reigning of those who've been purchased with his blood. I mean, this is triumph that takes place on Calvary that secures triumph for the church to the very end of history. You were slain, and by your blood you ransomed a people for God. The elect of God have been purchased by your blood. And it is from every tribe and language and people and nation. And out of this, history is about you making them a kingdom and priests for our God. And they indeed reigning on the earth forever and ever and ever. That's what Calvary was all about. And all that happens in chapter 6 onwards is now a mop-up operation. That's all it is. As one seal after another is being opened up, being opened up. It's the carrying out of that work of redemption right across history. Two quick imageries, two quick illustrations to bring this point home. First of all, it's the the ecstatic rapture that would have filled the soul of John at this point with a hope that is overwhelming. A number of years ago, uh, okay, let me begin by putting this way, that, you know, the biggest sport in Zambia is is what you people call soccer, we call it football. And it's, uh, it's not just Zambia, but it's, it's the whole of Africa. Uh, what you people call football, we don't know it back home. It doesn't exist. Our national team is not known for winning anything. 
So even when they've flown out of the country for some continental match, nobody even knows that they've gone. <laughs> Until perhaps they get into the quarterfinals, suddenly people wake up to the fact that uh, this thing is beginning to happen in the news. They start asking questions, who did they play with, how, uh, who scored, how did they win, and so on. By the time it comes the second, uh, the second from the, the final match, well, yes, the whole nation now is awake, and you know, everybody's now wanting to be by their radios or TV or the internet or whatever it might be. When they get into the finals, the nation is almost at a standstill. Once in the whole of my lifetime, they won the Africa Cup. The day they were playing, I was preparing to come to the US. I had worked so hard that day, I didn't even watch the match, I was sleeping. The way I knew they had won, it was as though there was a huge explosion in the whole city. Literally, I could feel the vibration. My own kids, it was in the middle of the night, around midnight, they all ran out of their home and they, everybody was just running all over the city, in the streets. I don't even know where they were running to, but they were all running and shouting. In the morning as I was heading to the airport, the, the streets were full of people, full of all the way to the airport. At the airport, the antennas that are meant for our mobile phones, individuals were sitting on them. I mean, there were human beings everywhere, everywhere. And even as I was driving to the airport, people were hitting the car, and of course I had to pretend I'm also equally excited I was hitting the car, and so on. The team had triumphed. They were bringing the Africa Cup home. Now, friends, that's a drop in an ocean compared to what John saw and felt here when he said, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that was in them, saying to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And then in the center of the throne, amen! What a glorious sense this meant to John to be able to see this and say there's a future for the church. The lamb has triumphed. But one more picture, and with that I must end. There are times when perhaps you're traveling and you are in a 
in a in a plane and there's a major movie, a blockbuster that's just come out and you, you have opportunity to watch it and this guy who's the main actor, you know, it's the normal plot for movies. He's beaten up, left half dead and, you know, it's, it's worrying as you're watching all this, what's going to happen to him. But you have opportunity to see this movie to its end. And the guy beats the villain to a pulp. There's one. Well, you get home. And uh, a few days later, the movie is now available for your family to watch. And as they are watching, the same episode is coming around. And they are, oh, Oh no! Oh no! He's about to be killed! You don't join in that fear, do you? No! In fact, you want to assure them. Don't worry. In fact, he's about to accept they want to enjoy the movies. So they come and shut up, they said to you. Shut up, shut up. <laughs> But certainly, you are not fearful because you've seen the end from the beginning. Well, friends, that's what John was given an opportunity to see. The end from the beginning. The Lamb has triumphed. A glorious day is coming for the church. Get on with business. That's the message for us today as well. Let's get on with business. The Lamb has triumphed. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this sight. Indeed, as the hymn writer says, look his saints, the sight is glorious. See the man of sorrows now. From the fight, returned victorious, every knee to him shall bow. Crown him, crown him. Crowns become the victor's brow. May that be the trust and hope in our souls in the midst of very difficult times to know that he has won the battle. It is now but a mop-up operation. Let's get on with business. For Jesus' sake, amen.